0: Uh, All right, we are in our series in Exodus. The book of Exodus, if you don't know, is in the beginning of the Bible, and uh, it is earlier on in the beginning because it is the early story of who God is and what God is doing in uh, creation, in history, in this world and uh you can tap the movement.church teachings for all the last couple weeks um they're up there uh but let me just give you a little bit of a recap i want to jump right in and give you a recap of what we've kind of undiscovered in this book this book is um is not just about this book in the old testament it's not outdated it's not um irrelevant to us it has so much to do with uh what we're going through who we are as a people um how we see god And so this is kind of what we've discovered and the timeline of what has taken place in the book of Exodus, in case you missed the last few weeks. Uh, We found out that Israel, uh, the people of God, the nation that God was starting to form to himself, to call his own people to him, to follow him, uh, Israel is enslaved by Egypt. At this point, about 400, around 430, 400 years of slavery under the dominion of Egypt. So they're sitting there. Crying out to God. They're crying out to God. And we find out that Moses, because Egypt is, is wanting to control Israel, and they're fearful of Israel growing too large and attacking them. If they gained uh, partnership with the enemy, they said, let kill all the boys off, all the first sons. And Moses gets sent down the Nile River, ends up being found by Pharaoh's daughter. And in a twist of events... We have seen over and over again, and we're going to see today that God is sovereign, which means in layman terms, God does what he desires to do. Yes or yes. He desires, he, if he desires it, he will accomplish it. Nothing is stopping God from doing what he wants to do. And so Pharaoh thought he's ending uh, israel's chance of growing and what he didn't know was his uh attack against god actually brought moses into his house and little did he know under his nose the deliverer of israel and the demise of his nation was in his house growing up god can do whatever he wants to do and he does whatever he chooses to do in ways that we would never imagine so Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. God calls Moses to help deliver Israel. And we learned last week in the first week that things end up getting worse before they get better. Moses is a deliverer. He goes to, to talk to Pharaoh, say, hey, help me be, uh, deliver these people, man. Let the people go. We need to go worship our God in the wilderness. And what does Pharaoh say? Nope. It makes things worse, makes the enslavement worse, makes the burden worse on the people of God. Not better, but worse. And so now at this point, Israel and Moses are both looking at God saying, what are you doing? You're not accomplishing what what you said you would accomplish. You're not delivering us. You're actually doing evil to us. And Moses' questions, we left off last week. Moses says to God, why did you ever send me? You ever asked that before? You ever ask, why, God? Why'd you send me? Why'd you let me do this? Why'd you allow this to happen? Why'd you bring this person into my life? Why'd you uh, shut this door? Moses is questioning reality right now because reality is not going according to his framework and expectations. Little did Moses know God was working behind the scenes doing exactly what he said he would do. So week one, the takeaway was simply that God is sovereignly at work using the bleakest of situations to advance his kingdom. He does that. We praise God for that. That God uses situations that look so horrible and uses it for his kingdom. He is a God of redemption. Redemption means he can turn something that's broken into something that's beautiful. How many of you guys know that? God takes something that's broken and turns this up into beautiful. We we miss that because we get caught up thinking, God, why did you allow it to be broken? And we miss the reality. He's using it to become something beautiful. And I told you last week, and we talked about it, how the question of why and how, that's fine. God can take that. He loves you asking questions. The whole book of Psalms is full of worship songs up to God saying, God, where are you? God's not afraid of that. But sometimes we won't get the why. But we do know the what and the where that God is making something beautiful out of the mess that we are staring right into. So he's sovereignly at work. Week two, we looked at Moses' interaction with God, how God called Moses out of the burning bush, and Moses listed all these excuses off. If you didn't watch last week, I'd encourage you to watch it, in particular because we are so like Moses. We come up with so many excuses when God asks us to do something. We have so many obstacles that we see, problems with us that we think, man, we, God cannot use me. And if you ever have a question, that God cannot use you. How can God use someone like me with my past and my presence and the worries that I have and the lack of skills? I would encourage you to look at Moses' story because we see that God calls flawed people to accomplish his faultless plans. If you're thinking that God's waiting around for a person that has it all together to do what he's supposed to do, then uh, we're all screwed because God would not find anyone on this earth to be able to do what he wanted to do. If you didn't know, uh, we are all a whole bunch of broken sticks But God uses broken sticks and crooked sticks to make straight paths. God uses crooked sticks to make straight paths. And I praise God for that because God's not looking at you saying, you need to get everything put together before I can use you. In fact, God says, your weaknesses is what I want to use. I want to work through the most so that I can shine who I am in spite of who you're not. God uses flawed people to accomplish his faultless plan. So here's today's question. As we continue the story, we'll be taking a jump through a few chapters, and we're going to look at kind of a macro lens of what's happening in the next section of story. the story. Fr- the framing question is What is the one thing we can count on God doing in all things? What is the one thing that we can count on God doing in all things? I don't know all the things that God is doing in all circumstances and situations, but there is one thing, I mean, many things, but today we're going to look at one thing. There, is, there are many things that God is always trying to accomplish in every circumstance. No matter the circumstance, how it changes, what it looks like, if it's good or bad or takes longer or shorter, we, we, we think it's evil or not. God is always doing this one thing that we're going to talk about. He's always working towards this one goal at all times, in every person, in every circumstance. And I want to know what is that one thing. Because sometimes we don't know the micro purposes of God, right? We don't know exactly what God is doing in this circumstance. We're we're trapped in a hard situation. Financially, we're burdened. Relationally, we're disconnected. We've gone through some pain. Things aren't working out the way they're supposed to. So we don't know the micro purpose. We don't know exactly what God is trying to do but sometimes if we zoomed out and learned the macro purposes of God, what God is always trying to do, then maybe that would inform the very specific things. Does that make sense? If we zoom out and say, this is what God is always trying to accomplish, maybe that would help me reinterpret what God is doing in this specific circumstance. And I want that for you and for us. Because I don't, I don't believe that God has given us his scriptures and his spirit for us to be going throughout all of life having no clue what he's doing. I believe he wants you to know what he's doing so you can work according to him and his will and his work and not against it. So we want to know what is the one thing that God is doing in all things. Now, we'll be covering, like I said, chapter 7 through 11, a big chunk of this because chapter 7 through 11 happens to be actually chapter 12 too, but we're going to take a break and do that next week. Chapter 7 through 11 is the first nine plagues that God does on Egypt. How many of you know this story before? Maybe you didn't read Exodus. You watch, what's that movie with Charles... Uh, Ten Commandments, yeah, Ten Commandments. Um, I never watched it. I've seen some clips. Looked a little bit too cheesy for me. But uh, um, but the Ten Commandments, we know the the famous plagues. Everyone, I mean, people who aren't Christian and who don't believe in God have heard about the plagues. Have heard about what God has done through uh, through this story to deliver His people. And so we're gonna be looking at this and precisely and specifically what God is doing in this crazy moment in history. Now, let me bring you up to speed with a little bit of context. Exodus 6.6. 6. This is what we went over last week. God is telling Moses to say this to Pharaoh. I want you to say this. Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from, or oh, this is uh, talking to Israel. Moses talking to Israel. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He's telling them, I'm gonna deliver you. I'll deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. Catch this last line, so important. I will redeem you, how? How will God bring you out and deliver you and redeem you? With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. If you have a Bible or you're taking notes, I would underline or write that word down. We're going to come back to that. That is a very important word. Judgment with great acts of judgment. I'm going to deliver you and bring you out. So Moses goes to Israel and tells them, this is what God said. I know you're frustrated. I know things got worse, but this is what God said. He's going to deliver us. He's going to redeem us. He's going to free us. And there's going to be some great signs and wonders. He's going to outstretch his arm. That's just a biblical picture and a metaphor for God acting in this world. God's going to act in this world in a very obvious way in these next few weeks and months. And what comes out of this, the great acts of judgment that we see, are the ten plagues. Now, we are not going to go through every specific plague. I want to put them on here so you know what happened in case you haven't seen these before. And they're going to connect to some, some purposes that we see later. But in these next four chapters, I don't know the timeline. This could have been a couple weeks. Could have been a couple, I mean, it could have been at least a couple weeks, maybe a month or two max. It wasn't years. It was pretty fast, um, at least what the text reveals that it said, that this was happening. God was putting plague after plague after plague. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's stubborn. Earlier on, chapter 5, Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't know who the Lord is. I don't know who your God is. I, don't, I shouldn't obey him. I'm not going to let you go. Like, who are you telling me you have a different God? I'm, I'm king. There's no king besides me, so I'm not going to let you go. I don't know the God you're talking about. So because Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and I know this is a very confusing thing for us. I'm not going to, I was going to talk about today, but we're not going to. So if you have questions, we can chat after. But it's very confusing, right? If you ever read this story and you read how God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but then Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, I just want you to, to know that, one, God is sovereign. He can do what he wants Two. Uh, there was an interplay between Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God responding to Pharaoh's stubbornness. Three, uh, don't, be so, don't make this so safe and cute and comfortable that, that you can't um, see that God could have just hardened Pharaoh's heart without Pharaoh ever doing anything and God would still be justified. In other words, if God is God and he's all loving and just, then what he deems to do, even though it doesn't look just and fair for us, is what? Just and fair. Who are we to say to God, like Romans 9 says, who are we, the clay, to say to the potter, this is what you should be doing? So let's just let mystery be mystery sometimes. There's some things we can understand and some things that we can connect dots to and then things that are just too vast for us. All we know is that, that Pharaoh is stubborn. He does not want to give up the people of Israel. And so God has to either soften his heart or shatter his heart. God will either soften people's heart or harden it to shatter it because they have chosen to harden it. So we see that Moses is stubborn because it took 10 plagues for them at the first outset before the plague moses said deliver my people let my people go and what happened moses said hey come on we want to go our god said to go and pharaoh says no and so what comes after is a whole bunch of consequences to to open up pharaoh's eyes the nile churns the blood all the fish inside the nile die frogs swarm all over the land gnats fill all over people's skin and animals, which makes the animals and people sick. The land gets ruined by flies. Plague five, all the livestock die. Like, this is their money. This is their investment. This is their food. The livestock die. Boil, uh, plague six, the boils start to go on animals and people's skin, like painful things on, on all the Egyptians. Plague seven, hail destroys land and animals and people. Plague eight, locusts eat the fruit of the trees. They're not having a lot of things. I mean, after this, their land is ruined. Plague nine, darkness in all of the land for three days. We're going to stop here, even though you know plague 10, because we're going to go into this next week. But the last plague was the death of every firstborn. Firstborn male, the animals and the sons. Ten plagues... 10 requests to let my people go, 10 or 9, you could say even 10 denials from him, from Pharaoh. Now imagine you are Israel. It's already been about 400 years in slavery. Things recently just got worse. And you're wondering, what is God doing? And then you hear that God is doing these plagues and you're still not freed. You're probably thinking, God's gonna, Pharaoh's going to react and make things worse. Things already got worse. If God was God, I would think God could snap his fingers and free Israel. Anyone, raise your hand if you believe that God could have snapped his fingers and relieved Israel from slavery. Okay, so the question we should be asking is, why did God do this to the Egyptians? If God could do something, then why does God choose another path? put the question up here. Why does God do this to the Egyptians? We have to slow down when we read the scriptures to ask what is going on and not take it for granted. I said this to the team earlier as we were praying, but sometimes when we're wondering what God is doing and we're confused, it might just be that God actually has told us what he's doing and we just missed it. Sometimes we don't know what God is doing and that's, that's just because God is sovereign. We're just, But sometimes, which is really cool, sometimes God tells us what he's doing and we just missed it. That's why reading your Bible is so important. you know what the Bible tells you besides who God is? It tells you what God is up to in this world and in your life. So if you're questioning right now today, whether you have a lot of faith, no faith, don't believe in God, believe in Jesus, and you're like, I just don't know why God has allowed me to have this kind of life. Uh, the first place you, d- you should go is, is the Bible because there's six to 8,000 years of history of how God has acted in this world and what he's doing. And uh, it's the same God, which means there's a lot of the same things he's doing to people that outside of our culture and time, he's doing to us. And what I love about this book is that it's very clear in one point on what is God doing in this moment. Why did God do these 10 things? plagues chapter 7 is where we're going to jump off from this morning God says this but I will harden Pharaoh's hearts and though I multiply my signs and wonders the 10 plagues in the land of Egypt Pharaoh will not listen to you isn't this comforting to stop here God tells Moses what's going to happen did you know the Bible tells you how history is going to end There just should not be a reason why we are running around like chickens with their head cut off in anxiety and fear when the Bible tells us how things are going to end. It's a side note. All right. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You should speak authority to them. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. And look what he says next. It's so telling. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, another like, uh, metaphor for him actively working in this moment, and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, get this, by great acts of what? Judgment. We saw that word earlier. It's going to come up a couple times in this story. Great acts of judgment. The Egyptians This is the purpose. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I'm gonna do all these great acts of judgment and signs and wonders so that why? Why are you doing this, God? Why 10 plagues? Why couldn't you just snap your finger? One of the things, one of the things that we know God was doing was wanting Israel and Egypt, we'll get to Israel later, but Egypt to know that he, Yahweh, is the Lord. God's purpose was twofold. He aimed to deliver Israel. We know that. He's trying to free his people. But by doing this, the way that he did all these plagues, he wanted to make Egypt come to know that he is the one true God. so important that in the midst of these 10 plagues, that God could have easily fast-forwarded to, God was trying to show Egypt something they could have not learned any other way, and that is that he is the one and only and true God. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. This comes up so often in this book. Tomorrow, Pharaoh answered, may it be as you say, Moses replied. So they're talking, hey, come back tomorrow, don't do this. And then Moses replied, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. Again, Moses reiterates God's purpose. The reason these plagues are happening, Pharaoh, is because you need to know that there is no other God besides our God. I want you to know, Pharaoh, that our God isn't just one of many God's. It isn't just something you add onto the shelf of all the idols. I am the only God, is what Yahweh is trying to communicate to Egypt. Chapter 9, he says this, same thing. Let my people go, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. Catch this. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. What is God doing in these plagues? Why did God choose to do this and not just snap his fingers? God was trying to convince and show and display and pronounce that he is the exalted God and that their gods were false. God was, we can say, why would he do this? trying to teach Egypt a lesson. He's trying to deliver his people. Just deliver the people. Just deliver them. Just do what you're supposed to do, God. But God making it complicated. No, no, no. God in doing this, we are going to see that is one of the purposes he's doing in all things is that he's trying to convince all people, not just believers, but all people, that he is the one and only God. If you're here this morning, and you could be a Christian that believes this, or someone that wants to follow Jesus and believes this, and maybe you're not online, you hear this later. It's really uh, uncomfortable for us to, to claim the exclusivity of Jesus. By other words, that means some of us are uncomfortable by saying that Jesus is the one and only God and all other gods are false. There's been a poll taken by Barna, uh, I think it was like 5-10 years ago, that said 70-something percent of Christians think that they should not evangelize and tell people that, that Jesus is the one true God and their God is false because that's rude. I understand the, the, uh, the assumption or the feeling that it's rude to tell someone they're wrong. But when it comes to this kind of truth, uh, the feelings should not guide our display of reality. In fact, us not saying that is not cute and loving. It's very harmful. Especially if you and I really, in this moment, you're not just here to listen to me. You're here to, you're here to re, reprocess this information for your own life. Do you believe that God is the one true God or just one among many? And you can do Buddha or Allah or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. You can just add on whatever as long as it leads you to a path. That's not just false. That's improbable. Because you can't have multiple gods claiming that they are the supreme God and all contradict each other. Either no one's God or there's one God. But we have to keep asking questions. Because my mind goes to, okay, what was it about these plagues that would cause Egypt to come to know this? Right? Wow. So God's trying to show Egypt he's the one true God. What was it about the plagues that made Egypt know this? Couldn't he have done it another way? Couldn't he have, like, he... Did the burning bush to Moses? Couldn't he just done a sign and a wonder? Couldn't he come down in the form of Jesus? Like, why the plagues? What specifically was going on in these plagues that made this the thing that was going to communicate to Egypt that God was true and exclusive? Exodus twelve twelve. It's the last time we see this word again in the early chapters. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, This is about the Passover. We're going to read this next week. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Did you catch that? I'm going to do these signs. I'm going to strike the firstborn. And he says this, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. On all the gods of Egypt, we should know that the Egyptians worshipped over 2,000 different deities. 2,000 different deities. Someone say a lot. That's a lot. 2,000 different gods. 2,000 different beings they worshipped. 2,000 different gods that did all these kind of things. 2,000 gods. And what God is saying is, I will execute my judgments on all these gods. You can go to the next slide. These gods gave them food and health and blessing. To the the Egyptian, normal average Egyptian, the gods that they worshiped are the reason why they had the kind of life they did. The reason why they were the most powerful nation in history. The reason why they had food. The reason why they had fertility. The reason why they had protection was because of these gods. Pharaoh saw himself as a divine being. Like he was the king and no one was over him. He was their source of welfare and security. So God is coming into this nation. This nation worships 2,000 different gods, not Yahweh, 2,000 different gods. Pharaoh claims himself as God. And then we start looking at the plagues. The Nile was a source of life to the Egyptians, so much so that they would say that the Nile was a divine being, a God. And what do we see? The first plague? God basically destroys the Nile in that moment. It doesn't not let it be functional. Their livestock were seen as gods. What happens? Like in the fifth plague, all the livestock what? Die. The God of fertility was a frog. What happens? The frogs came all over, and then the frogs end up dying in that plague. And then what happens in the ninth plague? They believed the sun and the moon were gods too that bring them light and guidance and protection. And what God did in the ninth plague was cut out the power source of the sun, block out the light. What God was doing was something specific, not random. These plagues were not random disasters. What's so weird to us, gnats and frogs and light and blood, they were not random disasters on Egypt, but calculated attacks that pronounced the powerlessness of their gods. It's easy for us to think this was just so random. Why blood? Why this? Why gnats? Why kill their cows? Like, what are you doing, God? Are you vengeful and evil and, and, and impatient? Are you, are you mad? Why are you doing this? No, no, no. God was, was um, doing direct calculated attacks against all of the gods that they trusted in to reveal that their gods were actually powerless. Powerless. The plagues that he did revealed that the gods they trusted in actually weren't gods at all. That's why he says, I'm going to, upon these gods, I will execute my judgment. What's the judgment? They are not gods. I am the Lord. The plagues are not random. They are specific And even Pharaoh says something to this nature of, of, I don't want to believe. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? He's saying, I don't know about any other God. I know not the Lord and neither will I let Israel go. Neither will I let Israel go. Pharaoh is hard hearted and he acknowledges there's no other God besides me. And that's why we're going to read next week. The 10th plague, the death of his firstborn would be a direct attack on Pharaoh and his illusion of control. See Pharaoh not only believed he was a god, he believed that when he passed away, when he passed away, he would infuse his firstborn son with all divine power so he can rule in his place. So what happened? He did not only attack all the gods, he attacked the lineage of Pharaoh so that there could could be no other God outside of Pharaoh and Pharaoh couldn't continue his divine ruling. God was attacking the roots of their idolatry. See, this is what happens when we just zoom out. We see a bigger picture that each of these plagues was not just helping Pharaoh's heart finally give in to what God was wanting to do, God was communicating something so clear. God is not content, said it so clear. We need to understand this because this is God's heart for Egypt and us. God is not content with being treated as one option among many, but as supreme, preeminent, and holy. I don't know if any Christian would would normally say that they worship other gods besides Jesus. But, but worship isn't about what we say. It's about what we, how we live. And so what we say on paper is that I don't worship anyone but Jesus. But the functional way our life comes out into existence in reality says we cling on to things all the time. We worship things. We, Jesus is one of the options we go to among a whole bunch of other options. And God is saying to Egypt and to us, he wants to be supreme, preeminent, and holy. Holy means he's not the same class. He's in a different class and category. You know why we sing holy, God is holy, the great I Am song, you are holy. What does that mean? He's above all else. He's not in the same category as everything else we see in this world. Do you know that about God? God doesn't think it's cute that we would add on other gods and say, I go to other things and you, Jesus. Isaiah 42, he makes it very clear why he doesn't think it's cute. I am the Lord. That is my name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's jealous of his people and he's jealous of his glory and his praise. Why? Because he's due that glory and praise. And so he knows he shouldn't, you shouldn't be sharing his glory with other things. You shouldn't be praising other things and God. Hey, it's fine, Chris. I come on Sundays, I worship God. Hey, it's fine. Maybe Egypt could have been like, yeah, God, come on, Yahweh. Join the group of 2,000. And God's like, no. Even if you would worship me, you're still worshiping other gods. And I deserve all the glory, not just partial glory. But catch this, family. This isn't just what God is doing to Egypt. Even though he is, he's also doing it to Israel. Like, what? But Israel only has one God. Check this out in Deuteronomy. This is Moses writing after the fact of Exodus. And this is God talking to Moses. So beautiful, kind of a macro view of what happened. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, and all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. No other false god or idol or religious cult has ever done what I have done for you, Israel. Look what he says next. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and besides him, there is no other. You know what he's saying? I did these wonders, so that you would have undeniable evidence that I am who I say I am. Israel, I did this not just to show Egypt that they have some some false gods, but to show you that I am every part of who I say I am. When I say I am who I am, that means I'm self-existent. That means I don't need anything from you. That means I am not like the gods you think you used to worship. I am above that and beyond that, I am self-sufficient, self-existing. And I've showed you all these things so that you would be convinced that I am the true and only God. You were shown these things so that you might know the Lord is God. My question, maybe this is your question, wouldn't Israel already know that though? Israel shouldn't know that. Is the one true God. Israel shouldn't know that because they didn't have multiple gods. Like Israel, from Abraham on to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph is passed down, that there was this one God that chose Abraham that was going to build a nation, that they would be there, his people, and he would be their God. From the outset of Israel's history, it would be known there was one God that chose the people. Isn't this already assumed? Isn't it already implied? I would think it is. I would like to to say it is. But what happens in Israel's history, three months after the Exodus, catch this, this is so important and really embarrassing. Three months after the Exodus, three months after signs and wonders, three months after the Red Sea parting, three months after cloud and fire leading him, three months after manna and quail falling from the sky, three months after that, and just 40 days after God came down in a mountain of fire on Mount Sinai and said this, this is what God said to them. You shall have no other gods besides me. Three months after God showed his power and 40 days after God said, you shall have no other gods beside me. Look at what Israel did. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Get up, Aaron! (laughs) What respect! Get up, Aaron! Make us gods who shall go before us. And they said, after they made it, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean... Three months after the signs and wonders and 40 days after God in vocal appearance yells at him saying, don't make any other gods besides me. They're like, Moses is taking too long. Throw your gold down. And you know where that gold came from? Came from the Egyptians as a sign that they got delivered by God. And they used the fruit of their deliverance to to form an idol to worship. So in case, this is a side note, in case any of us would say, man, if I got to really see God, God, if you came through, I would never, ever doubt you again. Just, Just so you know, it's happened in history. It never worked. God, if you just did this miracle, if you just opened this door, if you just came down and audibly spoke to me, he did that to a whole bunch of people. It never worked. Jesus resurrected, and the thing that happened in the upper room when he came there, it said some worshiped and some what? Doubted. Israel wanted something tangible, something physical they can see, something tangible to see in worship for visible gods are more predictable and safe and comforting and controllable. You can't predict and control a God you can't see. You can surely predict and control a God you made. Why? Because you made it. You're above him. That's why Psalm says that those who Uh, The uh, people who worship idols, these idols have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't move. They have eyes, but they can't see. And those who uh, trust in the idols become like the idols. Why? Because they're just things that we made and formed ourselves. They have no life to them. We've made them. So in theory, we are the gods, not them. Here's the issue. God had taken Israel out of Egypt in one day, but it was going to take many years to to get Egypt out of Israel. He delivered, he delivered Israel and one day they were no longer slaves. You and I, one day, when we believed by faith, we were no longer slaves to sin. But yet, it's going to take a lifetime to get sin out of us, to get Egypt out of Israel. Even later on in the wilderness, they are complaining because their food isn't that good. And they literally say, I wish we can go back to slavery because at least we had hot meat. They literally say, I want to go. I wish we can go back to slavery. Even though we're freed and we saw the signs, I wish we can go back to slavery to Egypt because at least we had cooked meat. Y'all, that's crazy. But don't think it's crazy on them. We do the same thing. Oh, thank God I'm free, but man, it was a little bit better back here when I didn't have to check in and didn't have to have accountability and I could do kind of whatever I wanted to do. It was nice when I could hook up with the girls. Nice when I can go to this thing. Nice when I can say whatever I wanted to say. Nice when I can look at whatever I wanted to look at. And God is slowly getting the idolatry of Egypt out of Israel's heart. Unless you just look at Israel and laugh, we are Israel. Oftentimes, I look at the Bible, I'm like, man, these are idiots. How'd they not get it? The Bible is oftentimes a window where we see through it to see God. But it also can be a mirror by which we see ourselves. And the mirror that I see when I look at Israel is, wow, I complain just like them. I grumble just like them. I worship idols just like them. I don't trust God just like them. I really need the Lord's help. You shall have no other gods beside me. They did not listen to that 40 days after God speak in them. Because we were created for God, we latched onto all kinds of things in this world for hope and life, making what was created into what we trust. I think it comes out of a good place. Because you and I were created for God, We latch, because we're, we know that we're supposed to trust in something outside of ourselves, we latch onto all kinds of things in the world for hope and life, which is another word is an idol. We make what God created into what we worship and what we trust. The idols that we worship are nothing but things that were created, and yet we go to them for hope and life. We trust in whatever appears to offer us relief, blessing, security, and hope. Just read those words with me again. We trust in whatever appears to offer us relief, blessing, security, and hope. Where are you going today? What are you going to that promises you relief, that promises you comfort, security, blessing, hope? I know we would say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but we often have it's God plus something. And it's not just like a few of us, it's all of us, just in case you weren't getting that point. It's all of us that have God plus something. Look, I don't, you don't need to say, Chris, but I really do love God and trust him. I know you do. But John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol-making factories. On this side of eternity, we're going to keep looking at things and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to trust in that and worship it. Oh, this is good. Please, I depend on you. Oh, this is great. Look, it helped me. And we're going to make things that were meant to help us into things that we love and worship and serve. Let me put a list up here to see if any of these are things that we're worshiping in our own life. Our idols are not as easily spotted. They're not golden calves. Hopefully you don't have a golden calf in your house. If that is the case, there's some other problems you got to take care of. I don't think any of us have physical idols as much as in like that kind of like worship statue. And maybe I wish it actually was that case because that's a little bit different, easier to spot than some of these things, which are good things that we go to to say, I rely on you. Career and money. Status and appearance, how you look, how people perceive you. Maybe for you it's comfort and safety, not risking things. Maybe it's programs and rules, even this legalism and religion where you just you depend on this and you rely on it and you look for comfort and hope through the rules that you're obeying. Maybe it's control and power over your kids, your finances, your schedule. Maybe it's food and pleasure and sex, something that you go to to make you feel uh, quickly relieved and you feel good about what you ate or saw or did. Let's just be real. Like, this is not up here for someone else. This is not up here for your friend. This is up here for you and I. To say, where is it that I am looking for? Maybe it's not up here. These are pretty generic, but also specific. Where is it that I'm looking for and holding on to this, saying, I trust in this. I have formed this and I love it and, and I look to it and I depend on it. Paul Tripp said, you can tell when you're, what your idol is. When it gets taken away, you get furiated and you get frustrated. You can tell what you worship when when it doesn't work, when you're not allowed to worship it, when it breaks down and you lose your peace. What is it on this list for you that you would say, I, I am, these are great things and gifts of God, some of them, but man, I have clung onto those to worship. Just like Israel said, look at these are the gods that brought us out. You say, I love you, God, but you look at your career and money, and say, this is the thing that gave me peace. You look at your appearance and say, this is the thing that gives me confidence. You look at your comfort and say, this is the thing that gives me uh, a rest. You see where that happens? You look for these things and you subscribe the things that God has given you to these things. And here's what I know God is doing in each of us. Macro, he's trying to help us see the same thing that he's trying to help Egypt see. God was intentional in dismantling the things that Egypt trusted in with very direct attacks and church family, he is actively doing the same work in our lives right now. Are you saying, Chris, that he's executing plagues on our life? Yes and no. The same The same motivation that God had behind the plagues to intentionally attack the false gods to reveal their powerlessness is what God is doing in the things that we trust in that are besides him. Said it a different way. God in his love for us and zeal for his glory will eventually come to crush our idols and make us taste their utter futility so that we would see him as the true source of life. You know, one of the most loving things that God can do is to to open up your eyes to the idols you are worshiping and to show you that these things are not God. And the way that God does that is to show you they are empty. They're futile. There's no usefulness in them. But God's going to have to, the plagues were painful, right? The plagues were painful on Egypt. Why? Because they were relying on their gods to protect them and their gods weren't real. So whatever you're relying on, worshiping, looking, trusting into, God's going to have to, if, you're, if imagine like a stick, you're relying on it. God's going to have to knock the stick from under you so you fall down to realize that stick was never able to keep you up in the first place. So pay attention to the pain. Pay attention to the frustration and the pain. That is the Lord showing you that what you are going to is not able to help you. Chris, I'm feeling pain right now in this thing, the career, the money, this frustration. I got another, I got another raise. It's not working. I still feel like I'm, I'm still insignificant. I, I, I did this with my looks, my appearance. I'm changing my outfit. I don't feel like people are seeing me. I did this with comfort and food. I'm eating whatever I can eat and letting no restrictions, but I still feel hungry. I don't feel satisfied. And God is showing you in your frustration that the thing you're trusting in can never help you or satisfy you. Don't look at the pain and frustration and say, this is just because life's broken. It's because God is evil. No, God is loving you enough. You know what love wouldn't look like if God wasn't loving? He would allow you to worship the idols and be deceived. But because He loves you and is zealous for His glory, He will not allow anyone on this earth to worship idols without them seeing their futility. Unfortunately, some of us, some of the people in the world, have hearts that are so hardened. That God cannot get through to them because they have blocked him out. Now, God is able to come through any hard hearts, but we also know that God gives people up to the desires of their heart eventually. And if people have gone so often to an idol and hardened their hearts, that's what they've chosen. But for us, we have a heart that is sensitive, that is soft, is able to see what God is doing. So let me ask you a question. What is God revealing to be empty in your life that you are still going to and trusting in? It could be one of the things on that list. What is God revealing to you? He's showing you this is empty, Chris. This is empty. This is not working. You keep going back here thinking it's going to give you the rest and the security and the comfort, but it doesn't work. And you ignore the frustration. You ignore the pain. You fight through it to go back to it again, hoping because it's easier to trust in the things things you see than God. You're hoping this is it. You're hoping your control can give you the safety, the, the, the hoping that this relationship and God's like, it's not working. You're worshiping this stuff. It's not working. What is God revealing to be empty in your life that you are still going to and trusting in? I want you to really ask and answer this question for yourself. Assuming it's for all of us, that the distaste that we have for something is actually a gift from a loving God to show us we need to stop trusting in that thing. He was very clear to Egypt, very clear to Israel. I want you to know there is no one other than me in this earth that can do what you need to be done to you. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the one who cares for you, who will protect you, who will deliver you. And some of us, were deceived because we come to church and we do the Christian stuff and we read our Bibles occasionally. Let me tell you, that does not make you immune to idolatry. Some of us are doing just enough Christian things to actually be more deceived because we're thinking that we're doing the right things. But lo and behold, we've still brought our idols into the church. We brought our idols. They're still in our backpack. We carry them around as we follow Jesus. And Jesus would say, you got to take that off and not bring them into the life that I have for you. So here's a way to respond. I don't want this to be like, well, cool. I know my idols. I know Chris. I'm going to sex. I'm going to this food. I'm going to comfort. I'm going to control. And God's trying to crush that idol, so I would trust him. But knowing it is like, is, is half a battle, but you need to do something about it. In the book of Chronicles and Kings, we see the history of Israel play out where they would, a king would rise up and some of the kings were evil and they would worship idols and all of Israel would follow. And some of the kings were good. And when they rose up to power, it literally says this. You can go to the next slide. It says this, that they put away the idol. Like King Josiah, he rose up and it says that at the high places where the idol worship and the temples were, he smashed them. He put them away. So I want us to do that in our own life. It's physical. The things that we're going to, there's something physical we're going to. It, it, it fleshes itself out physically. So you need to step one, you need to name the false god. God did that in the plagues. He literally, Egypt knew he was calling out the gods of fertility, the god of protection, the god of life. They knew what was happening in the plagues. God was calling out every single false god to say, that's not real. You need to name the false gods that you're going to. Repent from trusting in them. Lord, would you forgive me for for thinking that this is what can give me what I'm looking for? But then lastly, church family, you, there's no way that we stop trusting in them until we put them away practically. What, what does that look like? I don't know. For you, if it, if it is your career and money, for instance, you would say, worship team, you can come out. You would say, you know what? I'm not going to quit my job. Maybe that's what God's calling me to do. But you would say, I'm going to, am I working 60 hours while I only need to work 40? Am I trying to work double time to get the bigger house, the better car, the better thing? And even though I got 100,000 in savings, I'm still fearful. And God would say, put away your idol. What does that mean? Stop. Stop going to that thing to rely on for your security. Could be the clothes you wear. could be the the things you, you look at and watch. Could be the food you eat. Whatever it is, what does it look like for you, church family, to put your idol away because God is worthy of our worship? He does not want to be worshiped among other things. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you take a moment to think through that for yourself? Cement it in your mind with the Lord. God, what is it that I need to put away? The thing that I'm going to for hope and relief and comfort? The thing that you're trying to strip away? My illusions? power that you want to show me God this thing is not working and I've been going to it for so long would you ask the Lord to reveal to you if if you're not sure Father we We sit before you knowing, God, that we have added things in our life that we trust in and worship beside you. It could be even good things like ministry and following your commandments and we we rely on those things, not you. So Lord, would you reveal it to us, what we are trusting in and, and relying on and depending on, And would you lovingly, even though there's going to be pain in it, would you lovingly crush our idols so that you would convince us, God, that you are the only God you deserve, not 20%, not even 85%, but all of our worship. And we are aware we will not be able to give you 100% of the worship all the time on this side of heaven, but that does not mean that we do not try and strive to give you more of our heart and our affections. Why? Because you are worthy of it. They're worthy of it all. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of all our affections and our allegiance. So God, we say, you are king, this thing is not. You are God, these things are not. Convict us, Lord, and help us repent and move to trusting in you in ways that are real and meaningful in our life this week. In Jesus' name, God, would you transform us? Would you stand with me, Church family? I want to read off a verse in Romans. It's the last slide, Leah, on the dock. We're gonna sing this in a moment. Worthy of it all, and the song goes. Second song we're gonna sing. It says, "From Him all are all are all things." and to him are all things. And what that is coming from is Romans 11:36. different translation says, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is att- intended for his glory. To him be glory forever, amen. You stare at that for a moment. Everything that you interact with in life, it came from God. Everything is holding up and existing because of his power And everything, not just some things, not just religious things, everything is intended for his glory. I know, Chris, I I can't do all that. Yeah, I know you can't. I know you can't. But it doesn't mean that Jesus would not want to direct our eyes more to God every single time. That's what sanctification is. He's just helping you rely less on this stuff and turn to the bread of life, the rivers of living water, Jesus says in John 6, so that you never, ever thirst and hunger again. Your idols will leave you empty. Jesus will leave you satisfied. So as we worship this morning, before you sing the worthy are you God, just make sure you've cast down your idols. It, it, it adds meaning to the worship when we say you are worthy of it all and not say you're worthy of it, some. God. Can we do that this morning, church? Jesus is worthy of it all. He has died for your sins. Your idols, they don't love you. Your idols, they can't heal you. Your idols will not save you, but Jesus will It has. Let's trust him this morning and give him the glory due to his name. Amen. Let's lift our eyes and our our mouths and our song to Jesus this morning.